sweet to sing at this time of year songs both old and new as we find new ways of reflecting upon Christ and also remember ways that Christians for many years have been singing and thinking about Christ as well. Proverbs 25, 25 says, Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. I believe this proverb captures the reality that we all love to hear good news. We want a good report. We don't want the threat of bad news coming. We want the hope of good news being just around the corner. And yet as we assess our situation today as believers in America in 2021, it can be hard at times to find good news. We know that COVID-19 has made the headlines and been part of the disheartening news over the better part of two years. And Writing the reports of case numbers is like riding the waves. They get worse, and then they get better, and then they get worse, and they get better. No doubt you saw the announcement over the weekend of the new Omicron variant that's making its way around the world and having people on edge yet again. On top of that is the disruption that's come to our lives and all sectors of societies as a result of the responses to this virus. But on top of that, if you were just to try to ignore all of that and just stick to your life and take care of your family, and well, if you're going to the grocery store, filling up your car with gas, you recognize the reality that the prices are going up. Inflation is rising at a rapid rate, and we're not seeing much good news on the horizon for our economy. Or if you wanted to look at social issues or politics. There's not much good news there either, for there's bitter debates that rage, not only between the parties over policy, but really over the underlying issues that are driving those policies. Issues such as abortion, as critical race theory, freedom, the role of government in the lives of citizens. Huge issues that are being debated. And hopelessness in our nation is driving people to take drastic measures. Maybe you saw the report released just recently by the CDC that reported that drug overdoses in our nation topped 100,000 for the first time in the last 12 months. This means that 254 Americans die every day from drug overdoses. Our nation is truly in crisis. Of course, if we go, well, let's stop looking at America. Let's pull out and look at the world. There's not a whole lot of good news there either. If you simply looked at the plight of human freedom, human rights around the world, country after country, you see people being oppressed by authoritarian governments. 
people getting caught in the fray of civil wars. And so, with that as the current state of affairs, here's Christmas. Merry Christmas. Somehow we've got to be able to deal with this reality of the world as it is and Christmas. And I believe that it's precisely because of the current state of affairs of our nation and our world that we need to be reminded yet again that Christmas is exactly what we need. Not because we need more sentimentality. Not because we need some more Hallmark movies to help us escape from reality. But because we need truth. We need a Savior who would break into this fallen world and give us hope. And it's exactly that that we find in the true meaning of Christmas. We find tidings of comfort and joy found nowhere else. Christmas brings this good news. Again, not because it distracts us with entertainment and with more deals we don't want to miss, Christmas isn't good news simply because it brings families together around a cozy fire while it's dark and cold outside and we enjoy good food and it puts warm fuzzies in our hearts for as good as those scenes and times are. Christmas is good news because it marks the greatest event in all of history. It's an event that brought life and hope to a lost and dying world. It was the time that God's light broke into humanity's darkness. This event, when God came into human flesh, is known as the Incarnation. The Incarnation. It comes from the Latin that simply means incarne. Carne being flesh, infleshed the infleshed Son of God. And the incarnation explains why the Christmas nativity story is so significant. You see, without the doctrine of the incarnation, the story of Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem and the manger and the wise men and all of that just becomes another interesting vignette in history that we like to read about once a year. And so my desire for us this Advent season is that you might hear, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the hundredth time, why the Incarnation is the best news in the world. Each of these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we're going to look at different aspects of this wonderful doctrine. This morning, we're simply going to look at the wonder of it, the amazing reality of of the Incarnation, because it is truly amazing that God would condescend to identify with us, and yet this wonder is easily lost in the midst of all that we have going on. In the midst of the cookies and carols, the parties, the packages, or the pain and the heartache and stress, whatever it is that fills our Decembers, it can cause us to lose the wonder of the incarnation. And so we need to pull back and look at this reality afresh this morning. And so I invite you to turn with me, if you're not there already, to John chapter 1.
the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We read the first 18 verses already this morning. We're going to hone in, particularly into verse 14. The the Apostle John did not record the birth of Christ like Matthew or Luke did. John gives more theological insight to the events that took place in those other gospels, or described in those other gospels. And so you could say Matthew and Luke give the historical account of the birth of Christ, and John gives the theological account of the birth of Christ, or his arrival at least. And so this morning we are simply going to hone in on verse 14. And so read along, follow along as I read this verse for us. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From this verse, I simply want to draw your attention to to three realities that will help us to wonder at this incarnation described in this verse. The first reality to draw your attention to is the Son's humiliation to us. The Son's humiliation to us. The verse begins, and the Word became flesh. The Word here, John picking up this title for the first time since verse 1. You'll remember as Steve read it earlier, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He then goes on to describe this character, this person, but doesn't use the term the Word until verse 14, our verse before us, and the Word became flesh. In verse 1, we get some basic truths about this person. In the beginning was the Word. We see the eternality of the Word. He already existed in the beginning. The Word was with God. Here we see that there was somewhat of a separation from the Father. We're dealing with two persons, God and the Word, and yet the third phrase in verse 1, the Word was God. The Word has the same qualities and attributes as God, therefore the Word is God Himself as well. Of course, it's from verses like this that we have developed what we know as the doctrine of the Trinity. This reality of Father, Son, and Spirit. The three in one that never ceases to amaze. And so verse 1, we have a full declaration of the deity of this second person of the Trinity, known as the Word, who is revealed throughout this gospel as Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. And in verse 14, John says this word who existed for all of eternity, who has the same attributes of God, became flesh. He doesn't say he became man. It doesn't say he took a body. He uses a more visceral, almost a crude term, flesh. Flesh here speaks of the physical body of that Jesus took on, that the Son took on when He came to earth. His real humanity. Shockingly, 
just in these matter of verses, we have the reality that the Word who created all things, verse 2, He was in the beginning with God, verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Nothing came into existence apart from the Son. And yet this One who created all things took on flesh that He created. Finite flesh. The sovereign, all-powerful God took on a frail and mortal body. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, In the creation, man was made in God's image. In the incarnation, God was made in man's image. This reality that God would humble Himself in the person of the Son to take on the flesh that He made. And so we see that the incarnate Son of God, the child of Mary, Jesus of Nazareth, is truly God, as verse 1 clearly states. But that reality, that dynamic of, of, of Jesus being God is declared elsewhere in the New Testament, and, and particularly in this book. And I will just narrow our, our scope to the book of John just to see this declared in other places. Verse, let your eye drift down to verse 18 of the same chapter. It says, no one has ever seen God, then the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. No one has ever seen God. We translate that to be, no one has ever seen the Father. But there's another one, another person that John has been talking about here, and he describes Him as the only God who's at the Father's side. And He has made Him known. Once again, John describing the deity of this other person who's at the Father's side. Turn to chapter 5, verse 18. John, chapter 5. Verse 18 says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Why? Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Here are the enemies of God, the enemies of Jesus, recognize his claims to say that God was his father meant that he himself was claiming equality with God. Look at verse, chapter 8, eight verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Once again, Jesus claiming to be the great I am of the Old Testament, the I am that was revealed at the burning bush to Moses. Jesus says, I am. I existed before Abraham was. And his enemies knew exactly what he was saying. Chapter 10, verse 30. 
after describing his protection of his sheep, of his people, he says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. We have one purpose, one essence. No one else can make this claim. Finally, chapter 20, verse 28. Here after the resurrection, Jesus had appeared to his disciples. Thomas wasn't there. He didn't quite believe uh, the other disciples and their report upon having seen Jesus alive. And so Jesus appears again to Thomas. And in verse 27, it says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus here is described by his disciples as Lord and God. So all of this puts together the the portrait that, that we're not talking about. When we talk about Jesus and we talk about the one born in a manger, we're not talking about just a devout Jewish man. We're not just talking about someone who is, who is a special human in simply a human sense. We're talking about one who had the attributes of deity. And yet we have to also make clear that Jesus uh, was also truly human. He actually took on human flesh. 1 Timothy 3 verse 16 describes this mystery of godliness and says he was manifested in the flesh. He displayed himself in the flesh. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What same things? Flesh and blood. And 1 John 4 verse 2, John helping the, the church to discern The spirits, he says, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And he says, if they don't confess he's come in the flesh, then this is not from God. In other words, confession that Jesus Christ appeared in the flesh is absolutely core to the gospel. And so, we are not just talking about uh, an apparition or an appearing of a divine or a, a a spiritual heavenly being who happened to show up upon earth and he kind of looked human. He actually took on flesh. But when we say that the Word became flesh, we don't mean that he took on any sin. We need to be emphatic about that. Now, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 3 that Jesus took on the likeness of of sinful flesh. To everyone who was around him, he looked like he was just an ordinary human being. He had the normal flesh that every other sinful person had, but as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he knew no sin. Jesus was absolutely sinless. John Calvin described this by saying, he said, the word flesh is not taken here for corrupt nature, but for mortal man, marking his frail and perishing nature. And friends, when we think about this, we are, are drawn into mystery. 
And it's, and it's amazing to, to think that God the Son, the one who existed before all time with eternal glory with the Father, would take on a, a frail and perishing nature. He took on this nature to rescue you and me from the darkness of our sin. So when the Word became flesh, the Son of God added humanity to His person. He did not change from God to man. In other words, back in John chapter 1, John does not say that God became flesh. Because in the context of what he's written, God becoming flesh, stated in that way, could imply that God, the eternal God, the Father, changed his nature and became human. But no, God... The Father remained the same, but the Word, who is God, became flesh. It's as one church father wrote, he, what he was, he continued to be, and what he was not, he took to himself. In the incarnation, there was no subtraction. There was only addition. Jesus did not lay aside his divinity, did not cast off anything that he was previous to his incarnation. He simply added human flesh. He added humanity to what he was. The Word became flesh. This phrase is the best description of the incarnation. Anytime we try to change it or add to it, or tweak with it at all, we wind up into error. And so we just wonder, at, even at the carefulness that John wrote this phrase. It helps to navigate away from error. As I already mentioned, he didn't say God became flesh. He said the Word became flesh. Nor does he say God entered into flesh. As if Jesus had been a divine spirit who simply entered into a physical body. Because this was a heretical view known in in early centuries of Christianity as Apollinarianism. He is not God in a body. He is the Word become flesh. It's not as if you could unzip Jesus and you get this divine spirit that could come out. No, is the Word become flesh. But John also didn't write that the Word appeared to be flesh. Again, this was a heretical view called docetism which held that Jesus only seemed to be flesh because as the ancient heretics held to it, God could not uh, bother to take on physical humanity. I mean, how disgusting for the divine, the pure and holy, to take on body and flesh and blood. I mean, that's, he wouldn't defile himself in that way, would he? And so he must have only appeared to be in the flesh. In this was the infiltration of Greek teaching into Christian thought. Jesus is the only human who's ever had two natures. He possessed a divine nature, a human nature. These natures do not mix to make a new third kind of nature. These natures do not represent a split personality within Christ like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And sometimes you might get human Jesus and sometimes you'd get divine Jesus. The Word became flesh. In fact, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D., in order to help refute the error that was spreading throughout the church, they they described the two natures of Christ as without confusion, unchangeable, 
without division and without separation. And you go, how do two natures, human and divine, come together in Christ, not mix, not be split? There's mystery in the incarnation. There's mystery in how heaven and earth could come together in the person of Christ. But as John Calvin said, these two natures constitute one Christ. And so as we look upon this mystery, we must be drawn into worship at our Lord. Jesus humbled Himself to take on the likeness of men. Philippians 2 verse 7. He left the glories of heaven to become a man. The uncreated one taking on created flesh. And it's in this reality that we see the greatest act of humility that has ever existed. Puritan Thomas Watson again put it this way. He said, for Christ to be made flesh was more humility than for the angels to be made worms. For anything to be made worms (laughs) is quite a change of nature, quite a humbling to be down to the dirt, a, a humble worm crawling through the muck and the mire. And yet the difference between Christ, the glorious Son of God, to take on human flesh was a greater act of humility. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, and therefore was willing to take on flesh. Watson again said it this way, he said, He stripped himself of the robes of glory and covered himself with the rags of our humanity. Now, why did he do this? Why did he humble himself so far? He did this to obey his Father. He did this to carry out the plan that he and the Father had arranged for all time to redeem humanity. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 1, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You see, Humanity could not produce a Savior on its own. If God left us alone and we were trying to crawl out of the sinful mess that we were in, we couldn't do it. There's no way that a Savior, a Redeemer, could arise from within broken humanity. We needed God to enter into our brokenness and to save us. And friends, this is precisely what the virgin birth teaches us. Virgin birth a miracle in and of itself that some laugh as illogical is simply the miracle of God entering into humanity. Jesus had no earthly biological father. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, as Luke chapter 1 tells us, in his mother's womb, in Mary's womb. And he was therefore truly human, For he was born of a woman, as all human babies are, but he was also of God, for he was conceived of by the Holy Spirit. And think about this. Think how perfect that was. If it had gone any other way, then this reality of the divine and the human together could be doubted. Consider if Jesus came into the world through a biological father and mother. Well, then his divinity would potentially be doubted. Was he really God? 
because he just had a dad and a mom like everybody else. Or if he had just appeared without being born of a woman, then you go, was he really human? Did he really enter the world? Was he really have human flesh? But as it happened, as Paul says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so as we reflect upon the coming of the Son of God and His taking on flesh, let us stand back and wonder at His humility. Let's worship Him for how far He came. Because this is not just a cold humility. This is not just Jesus doing His duty. This is Christ and His love for broken humanity coming and taking on flesh for us. I quote from Watson, Thomas Watson, once again. He said, He came that He might take our flesh and redeem us, that He might instate us into a kingdom. He was poor that He might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that He might give us His spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that He might bring us to heaven. And what was all this but love? If our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. Behold, love that passes knowledge. Ephesians 3, 19. Our hearts should melt at the love of Christ displayed in the humiliation of Christ as He came to earth. So we see that, this first reality, the Son's humiliation to us. The second reality that we see is the Son's identification with us. The Son's identification with us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Jesus truly partook in flesh and blood of humanity. He did not shortchange the human experience. He did not receive humanity light. He experienced everything we do except without sin. And so here's the point, friends. Jesus Christ experienced real human life. He knows what it's like to be a human in this fallen world. And this is what we must see at the center of the Christmas story, is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who left his heavenly home to come and experience life on this earth that he might identify with us so that we might have one who truly understands. This is one of the key takeaways of this, of the incarnation. We must see Jesus as the one who knows what our experience is like, one who understands what it's like to be human and who can sympathize with us. Friends, this means he knows what you're going through in 2021. He can sympathize with your lived experience because he knows what it's like to live in a fallen world. By taking on a human body, he affirms the goodness of God's creation. This, the flesh is not evil, nor was it a mistake. As a side note here, I believe that this is a strong argument against the current transgender ideology 
that says that somehow the bodies people receive are a mistake. Somehow there's a mess up between the inside and the outside. But no, you see, God took on human flesh, and that flesh was created good. And the fact that Jesus took on this flesh affirms this goodness. There's other realities we see in how Jesus took on our nature and experienced life here on this earth. He was thirsty when he came to the well in Samaria where a woman was drawing water, John 4. He was hungry as he fasted 40 days in the wilderness while he was tempted by Satan, Luke 4. Luke chapter 8, he was weary with fatigue and laid down and slept in the boat as his disciples crossed the Sea of Galilee. We also see other realities. He was born into a poor family and therefore knows the difficulty of of poverty. He was born in a country that was not free. He was born in a country that had overlords. Rome was ruling. There were soldiers everywhere throughout the country emphasizing the fact that they as a nation were not free and therefore he knows what it's the feeling of having his freedom stepped on. Best we can tell from the Gospels, he knows the feeling of what it's like to lose a father. We have Joseph there at the beginning when he is born, and yet we lose, the record loses track of Joseph. Best we can surmise is that Joseph passed away sometime in Jesus' childhood. And so I'm sure the one who raised him, the one who taught him life as his, his biological, his, uh, his father on earth, there was pain in losing that father. We know he knows the pain of betrayal. He knows what it's like to have someone who's so trusted to sting him so deeply. As Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, betrayed him to the religious authorities that led to his crucifixion. He knows the pain of death. For he experienced one of the cruelest deaths imaginable imaginable at the hands of Rome. He knows the suffering of temptation. He knows how good that sin can be presented. And it says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows the struggle of waiting upon God. He had to wait for his father to reveal when his ministry would begin. He had to hang upon that cross and surrender himself to his father. had to trust himself in his father's hands. Friends, in all of us, we see that this is a savior for you. This is a savior who meets you wherever you are. Whatever you're experiencing and going through, He understands. He's not a distant Savior. He's one who has stepped into life in this world to identify with you, to be able to save you. He's a Redeemer who understands, whose heart is full of compassion for you. Hebrews 2 tells us, that Jesus identified with us by calling us brothers. In fact, let's turn there 
to Hebrews chapter 2. This is key to the author's argument. Verse 10, Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is not afraid to call us brothers, to identify with us. He was made like us in every respect, verse 17 says. Why did he do this? Why did he partake of flesh and blood? Why did the incarnation happen? So that he might set us free from the bondage of Satan, from the fear of death, by dying for sins, and thus becoming the merciful and faithful high priest that we can turn to in the midst of our suffering, that we can turn to in the midst of our temptation, that we can turn to in the midst of our weakness and recognize that we have one who's merciful to us, one who identifies with us, one who can truly help us. Not just act like another friend who can listen and put their arm around you and say, oh, I feel so bad for you. But Jesus, the Almighty God, who is able to, to do all things for us. Jesus redeems us from our brokenness. He is our way out. And again, this is why the message of Christmas is tidings of comfort and joy. We have a Savior who entered our world, who identified with us. We have a Savior who lived in our shoes. A Savior who came into the darkness to shine His light. He came into the dungeon to set captives free. Folks, this truth about Jesus coming into our world and taking on flesh is not just a little something to make us feel better. This is not just like psychological Tylenol so that we can just kind of numb the pain and go, all right, I kind of feel better because I got Jesus. This is a historical event that took place. This is a, he took on real flesh and blood so that we might experience real redemption. 
He took on real human life to redeem real human life. And in this, he is truly the better Adam. The first Adam failed, the second Adam does not, and he succeeds where the first Adam failed. And so, we see from John chapter 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So friends, don't let anything keep you from going to Jesus. Don't let anything keep you from going to the Savior who has identified with you. Go to Him with all that is on your heart. Go to Him with all of your pain, all of your weakness. Don't let anything keep you from trusting Him to save you from your sin. Well, as we go back to John chapter 1, we get the third and final reality that helps us to wonder at the incarnation this morning. And that is the Son's glory revealed to us. The Son's glory revealed to us. John says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, one thing I haven't said about this word dwelt, this word translated dwelt here could be rendered to take up residence or to pitch a tent. And it harkens back to the tabernacle of the Old Testament. The tabernacle in ancient Israel was a tent constructed from instructions by God. It had a plain exterior, but its interior was filled with gold because the the glory of God came in and filled that tent after it was completed. Exodus 40, verse 34 tells us. And so with that as a background on the Jewish mind of this tabernacle, where God came and dwelt amongst His people and His glory filled that tent, John says that the Word came and tabernacled among us. Jesus, John is saying, is the new tabernacle. Well, the glory of Yahweh dwells. Where do we go to meet this great, mighty God? No longer in the tent of meeting, no longer in the tabernacle, but now in the one who came and tabernacled among us, Jesus Christ. He is the one who possesses the glory, and he reveals that glory to us. John Owen said that Christ alone is the true substantial tabernacle where God dwells personally. Thus, Christ is the only way and means of our approach unto God in holy worship. Only through Jesus can we worship God Almighty. This glory, you'll notice John says in verse 14, we have seen this glory. We have seen this glory. This glory was visible to the disciples. We beheld the glory. Now, what kind of glory was this? Well, John says it's glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This was glory of the Son Himself. Jesus possesses a glory to Himself, but it's shared with the Father. His greatness and majesty was contained in His person, but it was beheld, it was viewed by those who were with Him. Now, how is it that Jesus could possess this great glory And yet, it was viewed. Was he walking around glowing all the time? Was he he just this bright brightness that was all around him? Well, we do know that there was a time in which 
that curtain was pulled back, right? Known as the transfiguration, in which that great glory of the Son of God was shown to three of the disciples just for a moment. And they were able to see this glory, John being one of them. But I believe, as we put this context in the whole book of John, that it's more than just that single event. For throughout his ministry, as he did signs and wonders, and as he, as he taught, and as he ultimately died upon the cross, he displayed a glory that was visible to those who could see with faith. Joel Beakey has this helpful de- explanation. He says, concealed in his assumed humanity, this glory consisted in the reality of his deity visible to the eyes of faith as he worked miracles taught, and died on the cross. It was those who had the eyes of faith that could see Jesus of Nazareth walking around doing these signs, and it revealed to them that this was the Son of glory. To the unbelieving, they simply saw a man. But to those who had the eyes of faith, they saw a man who revealed the glory of God. Now, John also says that this Christ, this glory, is full of grace and truth. In this, we get two qualities that are unique to God, that, he's, he's, that this glory exhibits the grace of God. Everyone wants grace, right? Everyone wants their sins and rough edges to be looked over. But grace is only truly found in Jesus Christ. True grace and forgiveness. You see, grace is a gift. It's receiving what we don't deserve. The life and love that Jesus brings to sinners is unique to Him. But we cannot divorce this grace from truth. John says He's full of grace and truth. God's grace is never separated from truth. Both qualities are found in Jesus Christ. As you know, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This world is full of lies and half-truths. But the the truth is found in Jesus Christ and in His Word. And so, this Advent season, as we see this reality of the Incarnation, we must be reminded how Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And being God with us, the Word become flesh, He's truly exactly what we need. He's the Savior who identifies with us and has dwelt with us. If If you are feeling weak this morning, Jesus is for you. If you're burdened and stressed with things in your life, Jesus is the Savior for you. If you're feeling guilty and weighed down by your sin, Jesus is the Savior for you. If you're feeling worried and anxious, Jesus is the Savior for you. If you're feeling hurt and aching, Jesus is the Savior for you as well. Friends, there is no realm of human existence. There is no things that we can feel or experience that would cause us to, for Jesus not to be the Savior that we need. And so our greatest need, whatever our condition is to go to Jesus, to depend upon Him, to look to Him for our hope, for our joy, for our comfort, for our salvation. 
And so the call to every person is to believe upon Jesus and to receive Him. Notice what John says just before these verses in verse, John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, those, there are those who reject the Word and do not believe and trust in Him. And they carry on their merry way just as it says the world did when, he, when Jesus first arrived. And there are those who receive Jesus and who place their faith and trust in Him, recognizing that their entire dependence, that their eternal existence depends upon Him, that there is salvation found in no one else, that there is no hope in this world or in life after death apart from Jesus Christ. And when one places their faith in Jesus in that sort of way, there is life and there is adoption to the family of God. John says we have the right to become children of God and we're born again. Not born in a physical way, but born in a spiritual way by God Himself. And so all true believers who have received Jesus will echo the words of Isaiah 25 verse 9 that says, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Amen? The only joy and comfort we can find in this world is in Emmanuel. Only the Word become flesh can give us hope. He alone has entered our world to reveal glory to us and set us free from sin. And so this Christmas, let us wonder at the Incarnation. And I pray it's a wonder that draws you close to Jesus during this Christmas season. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the wonder of the Incarnation. We are left scratching our heads, realizing we cannot understand how the Almighty, Infinite, Eternal, All-Powerful God was able to take on human flesh. And the fact that Jesus still remains in that flesh, having ascended to heaven. Oh, what great love was displayed in His coming to earth. Oh, Father, may You please give us hearts of humility. Help us, give us eyes to see the beauty, the glory, the wonder, the love that is seen in the Incarnation. May our hearts not be cold towards these truths. But may your Spirit warm our hearts that we might worship Christ afresh this Christmas season. Worship the one who identifies with us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.